Welcome to Saving the Game. This is Episode 40, Religious Orders, recorded May 1st of 2014, with your hosts, Grant, Peter, and Brandon. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. And I'm happy to be here. Also, you're Brandon. Otherwise known as Brandon. Yeah. <laughs> yes, there we go. All right. First off, I want to apologize for missing the episode two weeks ago. Those of you who pay attention to this will have seen um, an apology posted and uh, probably downloaded a quick little I'm sorry, so sorry blurb. We just had bad scheduling mix-ups, and Peter had a bit of a tragedy. So uh, Yeah, my father-in-law died, actually. <laughs> Yeah. It was expected. He was suffering with cancer, but that was something that needed to be attended to immediately. So Yes. And listen, the podcast is important to all of us, but there are other priorities. So <laughs> And the good news is the guest host we were planning on recording with that particular day, he's going to reschedule with us. We'll get that happening at some point. Yeah. On much brighter and happier news, Save Against Fear 2014 is now officially scheduled. It's September 12th to 14th in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. This is probably our favorite convention we've never been to. (laughs) Sadly. I would really like to go, and I think if, well, not for what we just mentioned earlier, it might have been possible for me to go this year, but... Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, my family already has booked that weekend for me. Go figure. But... If you are interested in running an event at Save Against Fear this year, or you have an idea for panels, they're actually going to have some panels this year for the first time, send them an email at thebodanagroup at gmail.com. That's B-O-D-H-A-N-A. Or get in touch with one of us through our social media stuff or our email, what have you. All of that's on our website. Yeah, we will be happy to hook you up with the Bodana Group people. Yeah, absolutely. Jack Birkenstock has kind of been in touch with us. You may remember the interview we did with him last year. And if you haven't heard episode 25 with him, it's one of our best episodes ever. Go listen to it. Indeed. It's a lot of fun. But he wanted us to get the word out about it and let you know that they are looking for people to organize events and run games and generally be awesome people. So there you go. And all that information is available also through saveagainstfear.com. So go check them out. If you've got a chance of being in Lancaster, Pennsylvania that weekend, September 12th to 14th, I would really encourage you to go. It's a good cause. The convention raises funds for the Bodonna Group. So well worth going to. By all reports, it's a really good con, too. Yes, yes. It's really growing quite quickly, which is pretty awesome. Speaking of small conventions, Fear the Con is also coming up in June this year. The convention that's put on by Fear the Boot, which is how we all met each other. On the internet, anyways, we have never been in the same room together. As was discussed last episode, I believe. It is June 13th and 14th of this year, down in St. Louis, Missouri. They've got a website, fearthecon.com. And this is the one I am going to make it to this year. Is I'm not going to be able to make it, so. I can't make it either, which is sadness. Yes, but, but someone will be at a con at some point this year, and that's exciting. Yes, one of us will be representing us at the con. Other announcement. Brandon, you had something. Uh, Yes, I have actually two announcements, one of which I entirely blame Grant and Peter for. First announcement, the one I do not blame Grant and Peter for, is that I've actually started playing in an actual game, which is something great because it's something I'm doing with friends. When you say an actual game, you mean like in person? Yes. Those still happen? 
Mm-hmm. He's in the mythical in-person game. <laughs> Weird. It's not yes. at a convention or anything. You're actually getting together with friends in meat space every week and yes. gaming. And it's great because I'm playing a, a, an orc barbarian who's very okay. against the party. I, I nominate we stop recording this episode and move immediately to Virtues and Vice's Envy. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> I have to tell you a little more about Vras <sighs> later on. Now on to the other announcement. Last week I did something that, well, I never thought I would ever do. I was a referee at a Magic the Gathering tournament. Oh, really? Yeah, I entirely blame you guys. <laughs> also not unreasonable. Yeah, nope. No, he, he's being fair yeah. there. That's, um, well, no, that was good. You really can't even duck out of the way of that one. Now you got to take that one on the chin. Yeah. Uh, it was a two-headed giant tournament. Nice. For the uh, oh, cool. Forge a God Slayer for the release of Journey into Nyx. A friend of mine asked if I could run it. I said I was free, and for it, I got a starter box of the, or the little event thing that had cool. a couple packs. So I'm looking to build a standard green-blue deck. Oh, I love green-blue. Yeah, so do I. I. That might be my favorite. Yeah, I think it's definitely one of mine. Control plus big, crunchy creatures. <laughs> yep, good times. Every form of acceleration yes. in the game, too. And now, Brandon will never have money again. <laughs> Basically, yes. Well, I don't have money right now, so I'm probably going to have to just go to my other friends. Yes, to- but you now will never have it again. You, all of your future money has been spent <laughs> for you now that you're into magic. Yeah, this is why I stopped buying magic cards and trying to keep up. Just couldn't do it. Yeah, same here. Tempting though it is. Of course, I'm playing Hearthstone now, which is at least free to play. Yeah. So, well, cool. That sounds like it was fun. Yeah. Indeed. It was. I. It was very interesting. I, I did a couple things wrong. I'm like, Okay, so uh, these days uh, like, people are coming up to me with rules questions, and I'm like, I don't <laughs> Have you ever seen the official rules for Magic the Gathering? No. <laughs> it's like a 70-page PDF that a good lawyer would be puzzled by. <laughs> it, is, <laughs> it is dense. Yeah, those DCI judges really have to go through a lot. Oh, tell me about it. It's an impressive set of, of very specific Knowledge. With it being that thick, if you print it out and you have it with you at the tournament, if you get somebody who's just intractable, you can always beat them with the rules and it won't leave a mark. So <laughs> That's true. Peter, you had an announcement as well, didn't you? Yeah, I guess this is just kind of general life stuff, but it seems appropriate. Starting May 20th, I am going to be on the board for my local food pantry. Which is awesome. Yeah, it's, it's very cool. It's a neat little local operation, very efficient, 100% volunteer. They're very good at taking whatever resources they get and turning them around with minimal reduction in their amount and giving them to people who need them. So I'm really looking forward to serving in that capacity. Awesome. And then kind of along the same lines, I'm not sure if I've ever mentioned this, but you said I probably should. So I'm also on the board of trustees at my local church that I go to. I've been serving there since late last summer. Pretty sure that Grant and Brandon knew that. I don't know if the listeners did. don't think it's ever come up in an episode. Yeah, and it's a minor point, Yeah, just a point of interest, really. Yeah. The food pantry thing, however, very cool, and I'm really excited for you. Yeah, that's massive awesome. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to that. Seems like a really cool operation. Yeah. And it's the kind of hands-on service that needs th- to be done. That was what really appealed to me about it when it was brought up by the member of my church who put my name forward, actually. She came up and she's like, you know, we're looking for some younger people on the board. And yep. I was like, 
really? You're considering yeah. me for this? Sure, where do I sign? No, that's awesome. It's like seven or eight months out, but one of the things that is going to come up probably in our next New Year's resolutions list for me is getting into actually doing something in terms of service through the church or in the community rather than just going to church and Sunday school. It's something that I need to start doing. So, yeah, I was feeling the same way yeah. until this fell into my lap, so it worked out well. Yeah, it's perfect. Very cool. I have one other, I can't even call it an announcement, but just kind of a, a heads up to the community of listeners that we have. We have very often plugged our Google Plus group, and it's an awesome community. There's some very sharp, very interesting people in there. But it kind of feels like the demise of Google Plus is in the wind, or at least Google's abandonment of Google Plus. Google has transferred a lot of people away from the Google Plus team and not put new people in it. They have announced that they are no longer going to be trying to integrate Google Plus with their other services, and it just kind of feels like it's on the way out. So there's nothing that's going to change right now, but in the future we may be forced to find some alternative for our community stuff. I'm looking at some options. I've actually already reserved the Saving the Game subreddit, just in case. A few other things that I'm looking at. Yeah, there's a couple of other options out there that we would have to talk about off mic, but I can think of a few things, too. Yeah, but just kind of a heads up. It's something that may happen. It may not. It may be something that we can leave in place for a while, but we'll have to find out. And hopefully they don't get rid of Hangouts, because... I love Hangouts. If they get rid of Hangouts, I will have to buy a new computer. Yes, we'll be going back to Skype and... And Skype does not work on my computer. The audio drivers were apparently written by a five-year-old in crayon. And we so, can never do a live episode because... Yeah. 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 But that's borrowing trouble and no point in doing that. Yeah. Just a heads up. Anyway, so let's move on, shall we? We've got some scripture to read. Uh, Who wants to take Exodus 28? I'll take that one. Have Aaron your brother brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so they may serve me as priests. And we have Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. And last we have 1 Peter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Our primary topic tonight is religious orders, specifically religious orders in your game as a world-building concept. We're mostly going to talk about this from a world-building perspective. That does not mean that it's a GM's perspective. I am of the opinion that world building is at least as much on the players as it is the GM in some cases. So, As evidenced by our Shadowrun game. If you're a player and you heard the word world building, don't turn off. <laughs> a player can come into a game with like, I want to be a member of this order, which is not canon in the story, but I have written it up. Here, GM, run with it. Yeah. If the GM's good enough. Going back to what I mentioned about my orc character... The game we're playing is one of the Pathfinder adventure paths. I think it's the Jade something path, Jade Empire. And in it, I've basically wrote in my orc tribe and sort of what they want as a sort of organization in there. They're not a, 
Well, they technically are a religious organization because they worship their ancestors and things like that, but it's odd. Right. That's fair. This is something that a player can bring in even outside of the GM. Right. If you're not running a game, but you want to say, hey, I want to make a character in a religious order, this is the religious order, your GM go. Well, and it can also be as simple as a character making a friendly Russian troll as a contact and having it become a hit with the other players in the group. <laughs> yes, it can. I mean, world building happens. Oh, friendly Russian troll. Yes. That sounds like a player in one of my games. He's an NPC that I created in our Shadowrun game. He has been unexpectedly popular with everybody. Yes, yes he has. I have a Russian summoner in my Y2112 game now. He repeatedly tries to put turbans on the head of the Warforged. I would call well, him a friendly Russian troll. There you go. <laughs> he is trolling at any rate. Okay, so having said all of this, we're not experts on the history of the church or history. So we're not going to be going into a lot of great detail about particulars of historical examples, but it's something we wanted to talk about. In some ways, this is a continuation of our third episode ever, which we talked about paladins, but we're going to be a little more general than just talking about paladins and holy war. The first thing we have to ask ourselves when we're talking about religious orders is how we define the idea of a religious order in the first place. Historically, Roman Catholic religious orders were marked by particular vows, solemn vows, which were considered indissoluble. Even if for some reason you had to leave the fellowship of a particular religious order, the vows that you took were considered to still apply to you. There was this idea that being a member of that particular order didn't stop when you stopped actively contributing to it in some in way. In much the same way as in modern America, you say there is no such thing as an ex-Marine. Kind of works the same way here. Yeah, yeah, it's somewhat similar. Although in this case, it was a little heavier. There's a strong culture of kinship and fellowship within the Marine Corps that continues after active service, whereas in this case, your vow meant that you were a part of that order for life, whether right. or not you were actively involved with it. One of the other distinguishing features of a religious order is the hierarchical structure of authority within it. Unlike Protestant churches, which have a lot of loose organizations and various different circles of activity, these historical Roman Catholic religious orders typically had and still have some sort of hierarchical authority structure. Always there's somebody in charge up to a superintendent at the top of the order. And Along those same lines, they were typically official orders given whatever the papal seal of approval is. Again, this is where my historical knowledge falls flat, but that tends to be the case. When you're thinking about a religious order as opposed to some sort of looser organization, that's one of the key points where I think you'd have to say this is an order versus this is a group that meets in a particular room on Sundays. Right. You've got some broad categories of them down here. Yes. Here, I should confess that this is drawn almost verbatim from Wikipedia, just because, again, lack of historical knowledge. But it's a useful way of thinking about these orders. These are broad categories of Roman Catholic orders. You have the canons regular, which are canons and canonesses who recite the divine office. Essentially, they do mass and worship and that sort of thing. And they serve a church, maybe a parish, but they're not priests or clerics. 
monastics, which are probably what we think of most commonly when we think of religious orders, monks and nuns living and working together in a monastery, also reciting the divine office. Mendicants, which are friars or religious sisters living off of alms, reciting the divine office, and in the case of men, participating in apostolic activities. And then clerks regular, which are priests, and that's what we typically think of as priests and clerics. You know, they take religious vows, have an active apostolic life. Um, so there's these broad categories, and to kind of condense that down a little bit, there's religious orders designed to serve the church organization and enable it, to worship in particular ways, and to serve the community of the faithful. That's really kind of what we're after. Okay. One of the reasons I wanted to talk about this topic is that religious orders in a game can have really interesting, far-reaching consequences, not just for the church and not just for the player character or the story that you're trying to tell, but really for the world that you're building. Long ago in that third episode that Peter and I did, we talked about the Knights Templar and the Knights Hospitaller. The Knights Templar had a tremendous influence on Europe to the point where their secular influence had gotten so significant that they were essentially destroyed by what you could consider a conspiracy of nations. Whereas the Knights Hospitaller are still around today as the Knights of Malta. Yes, and the Knights of Malta are called that because they had authority over the island of Malta. That was their home, and they essentially ruled it for at least a couple of centuries. They had that sort of secular authority as well as religious authority. But the impact on history and the impact on a world can be a lot more subtle and in some ways more interesting. One of my favorite examples is described in a good book that I own called The Three Edwards by Thomas B. Costain. It's part of his four-part series, A History of the Plantagenets. Uh, it's out of print now, unfortunately, but if you happen to be able to find a copy at any point, pick it up. It's a really good history book. But Costain's talked in here about the early 12th century and the rule of Edward III, where England started to really grow as an economic power. And that was partly due to the presence of the Cistercian monks in England. England's biggest export was wool, raw materials. And not only was it a large quantity of wool that they exported, uh, to the point where wool sack was the term used to describe the seat of the Chancellor of the House of Lords. Seriously, <laughs> wow. that's where it came from. The wool was exceptionally high quality. And the reason it was such high quality is that Merino sheep had been brought in from Spain by Eleanor, the Castilian Queen of Edward I, but it had been crossbred with the English sheep raised by the Cistercian monks. The Cistercians had about 100 monasteries throughout the country. They had broken away from the Benedictines, and they divided their time between devotions and working in the fields. And they were tremendous sheep herders. They actually employed the neighboring villagers as assistants because they had more sheep than the monasteries could herd. At one point in 1280, the Abbey of Mio alone had 11,000 sheep. That is a lot of sheep. That is an awful lot of sheep, especially in late 13th century England. But the thing about it is the sheep that they raised were crossbred with the Merino sheep and were 
really bred for a superior quality of wool by these monks, which gave England a tremendous amount of wealth as an export and cemented their ties with Flanders and the Netherlands, or what would become the Netherlands, because that's where all the looms were. The looms in Flanders depended on the wool coming in from England. So you had this trade relationship was founded that really lasted all the way through the Reformation from the 12th century. It's a subtle thing. That is fascinating. Statistics in 1354 showed that of England's exports, 13 fourteenths of their exports was wool. That is a lot of sheep. That is a lot of sheep. And it's because the Cistercian monks raised sheep, bred sheep, talked about sheep and animal husbandry and found ways to breed them well. And they're doing it because of religious reasons, but it has this far-reaching impact on history and the economy of the country that they're living in. Huh. It's interesting, and it's the kind of thing you need to take into account, especially for orders that have a history in your world. Yeah. So we're talking about creating religious orders, right? Indeed. And you guys came up with a series of questions for this. I think a lot of these are... Brandon. So do you want to go, Brandon? All right. Yeah, a lot of these are Brandon's. So one thing I could contribute to this is what you do in game with. And I just thought about it. What would I do if I was creating a religious order in my game? And some of the things that I would have to ask and find out for myself. Well, the first is what purpose do they serve? And Grant has added here, what purpose they serve in the church, in your world, in your story, which is, he mentioned here, the most important question of all. You have to figure out how this is working. If you want to put anything into your story... Have a purpose for it being there. Right. Maybe the purpose could be it's just cool, but try to have a deeper one than that. Right. If you're trying to do some world building as a place for stories to happen, that's perfectly fine. But think about what kind of stories can come out of there. If you're not necessarily trying to tell a specific story, at least have an idea of the general sorts of stories that they might contribute well, to. Well, and be prepared to have a player read over your world notes and say, you know, I want to be one of those guys that raises the sheep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. World building is a funny thing. Sometimes you can tell a story that is influenced by things that never appear on the pages. There are plenty of people who have created worlds and then they tell stories within them and somewhere on the other side of the world, far away from it, that never appears on the pages, there's some entity, but... It has kind of cascading effects through its own existence that affect the story. The history of the world would not have played out in a particular way if not for their existence. So if you're creating a religious order for that sort of purpose, you know, it's okay if they don't appear in the story, but they need to have an impact. If they just exist and don't do anything and never affect the world, don't waste your time with them. That's my recommendation. Or just jot down enough notes where you can kind of describe them as your players pass by and move on to something that is going to affect your world a little more. Yeah, and probably second most important in here is what purpose do they serve in the church? Because that's really going to define everything else that we're about to suggest you ask to yourself. Why were they created and why do people think, hey, I'm glad these guys are still around? Or, on the contrary, man, I'm really upset that these guys are still around. Well, okay, yeah, there's that, but... At some point, somewhere along the way, somebody wanted them to exist. True. Yes, yeah. so somebody wanted them to exist for some reason. And again, no one is the villain of their own story. Right. So this religious order started because of something, a response to some issue. Now, even if they were a religious order that has gone too far, say that you've got a group of fanatics who are going around your world stamping out every single elf and every single magic user... Because they believe that they are inherently evil. Well, that is kind of 
stereotypical, but it does give a, a very interesting feel to the world. And the feel to the bad guys is that you have these people who are incredibly faithful, who may be even worshipping an incredibly good deity, but who are going around doing very horrible things without much provocation because, well, magic is evil and we must get rid of magic. Sure, but... That trope is a little hackneyed, heavily used these days, I think. Hackneyed, shall we say. Yeah, and I think it can be just as interesting, and obviously because I put such an order in a setting that you guys played in, to have one where, no, they're not corrupted, they're not dangerous, they're actually very benevolent, they're here to help in some way. Right. Uh, That Lantern Knight order that I created that you guys belong to that were essentially there to make sure that people traveling from place to place made it safely. Yeah. Right. And that kind of takes us around to one of these other questions. What brought about the founding of the order? What were they founded to accomplish or what event made it necessary for them to exist or desirable for them to exist? Yeah. In your case, Peter, hey, the roads are really dangerous. We need to do something about that. Yeah. The Crusades or why the Knights Templar existed, the Knights of the Temple, to protect the temple in Jerusalem. I've been playing a lot of old World of Warcraft, like Wrath of the Lich King recently. I'm instantly brought to the whole idea of the Argent Crusade. Those were two other orders, uh, the Argent Dawn and some other group, that founded together to go to Northrend to stop the Lich King. There was also the Scarlet Crusade that was a religious order that is pure bad guys that you've been fighting for a whole long time in their monastery. And they were religious people who mm-hmm. happened to be co-opted by a demon at some point to do horrible, terrible things. Right. I've recently learned that WoW lore is a whole lot more deeper than everything I've ever heard about it, because most of what I heard about it was, oh, go here and kill five wolves. Right. Uh, Honestly, everything I know about World of Warcraft lore, I learned from Hearthstone, and that can be summed up as ancient brewmasters have stats of 5-4 and return one friendly minion to your hand when you put them on the battlefield. pretty much everything that I know about World of Warcraft lore, I just learned by listening to Brandon talk. (laughs) So hooray. (laughs) This sort of backstory, you know, why do these people exist in the first place? That's something you need to really be able to describe, because it speaks a lot to the purpose that they serve. Now, it could be interesting if you can describe it, but they can't. If the order is old enough and their history is lost and they're not quite sure why they were founded, that could be interesting, especially if you're playing members of the order that are trying to figure it out for right. some reason. Or there's a belief, oh yeah, this is why we were founded, and history, if you had access to it, would really show something entirely different. But Better or worse. You know, it's- yeah, I mean, there's a sort of a creation myth, if you will, around the order. This is why we were founded. It's like, yeah, Rome was founded on seven hills by Romulus and Remus, who were taken care of by a she-wolf, you know, all that sort of thing. Well, that's not how Rome actually was founded. But that's the history that anybody knows, and hey, it's good enough. The propaganda. And a lot of times is a order founded for one thing doesn't necessarily mean that it's still doing the same thing. Right. That's another interesting thing. It's like, we had this order that was founded for violence, but now it's an order of peace. Right. What happened to make that change? Or we had this order that was founded for military operations, which is now in banking, like the Templars. Exactly. Or we were founded to protect a particular site or perform certain rituals at a particular site or for a particular saint or something like that. And that has expired. The 
places destroyed. The saint has forgotten. It's- yeah, it's an interesting background, and rebuilding and rediscovering is always a great story concept and a great character concept. More power to you if you go that way. Other thing to think about is why do they believe the specific things that they do? Is there anything that makes them differ in any particular from the rest of their faith? Or is there a specific right that's unique to them for some particular reason? This doesn't always have to be the case. I think there's a common misconception that religious orders are the same thing as religious sects, where there's a some sort of theological differentiation between well, these orders. It could be. Yeah, and that does sometimes happen. It can be, but in most cases, that's not the case. For example, the Cistercian monks I talked about before, sheep, they were founded simply because the Cistercians felt the Benedictines were too lax. It, they were founded essentially to do the same things that the Benedictine monks did, and they were just basically saying, nope, we're going back to poverty and sheep herding. Which is, which is good, but the thing is, like, the more I'm thinking about this, this doesn't just have to be how do you make different religious orders. This is how you can differentiate different religions also as a whole. No, that's very true. Yeah, the church itself is a religious order. <laughs> For the definitions we're talking about, no, but it's definitely a religious organization, and there are strong parallels. It's a valid point, though. If you zoom that out, you, yeah. you really can use it the same way. At the very least, this is a good way to break out denominations. I mean, the, que- the answers and questions might be a little different as to why a religion was founded than why this specific order in this religion was founded. But well, It's the same concept, like, yeah. So we've talked about how they're established. We also have to talk about how others view them, which is another thing that a lot of people overlook when creating something is not just what you say about yourself, what do others think? Right. You can say, well, we are an order that is all about peacefully defending the homeland, but everyone goes, yeah, you're just a bunch of money grubbers. Or, no, you, you really do this differently. You're right. It's what's the popular perception of the order, How does the order represent themselves to the world? Do they represent themselves differently to the church, like within the religion, to other members of the religion versus kind of the the populace? If you're inventing a religion that has a lot of mysteries and secret rituals, that might very well be the case. Do they represent themselves differently to themselves within the walls of their organization versus outside it? I'm thinking of a specific religion in Eberron, which I'm not 100% up on Eberron, but there's some blood... You're god- talking about the blood of Vol, aren't you? Yeah. yeah. The- okay. I am up on Eberron. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Eberron's my favorite D&D setting. <laughs> because it has a train made of lightning. Come on. Eberron has a religion called the Blood of Vol, which is founded by a lich queen and exists basically as a front for her incredibly evil organization of undead. However, the common faithful believe in it because they believe that blood contains the essence of their life force, essentially, and they can tap into that to overcome death, essentially. Not necessarily being undead. In fact, I'll get to undead in a second, but essentially getting past the sort of dissolution that happens in Eberron when you die. There's a realm of the dead that's essentially sort of a realm of dissolving, and then all the religions differ on what happens after that fact. The popular opinion of the undead is that they are essentially 
martyrs. They have given up their chance to die and are trapped in this undead state in order to help others along. Sort of the bodhisattva idea in Buddhism where they have given up their chance to enter nirvana in exchange for coming back and helping others. It's a it's kind of self-sacrifice idea, except twisted because that's not really what's going on. Essentially, they donate blood to the undead and that basically fuels the undead that the Lich Queen uses for her armies. So it's an interesting religion because it's a evil religion where the people who believe in it are either in the know and are horribly evil or are pretty much just neutral people trying to get along as best they can because they really think it's something completely different, which as a player and a GM, I think that's all sorts of fun because it's, ah, look, we're tweaking expectations. Oh, yeah, that's a big old chest of storytelling gold right there. <laughs> Absolutely. Again, you have this very interesting dichotomy between the popular perception of this religion, which, again, translates pretty well to religious orders, versus the elite knowledge about it. And along those same lines, popular opinion of an order may be very different from secular elites opinions of that order as you saw with the knights templar for example as they're gaining in money and power the elites are essentially seeing them as a threat to their power whereas the common folk either don't have an opinion on them or are perfectly happy with them but the elites say aha these people are threatening our power let's take them down which is another thing is that while we mentioned what does the populace think the populace is not one homogenous blob right no, you've been around during election season, right? <laughs> yes, it's two homogenous blobs. No, um, <laughs> no, it's not even that. <laughs> that would be easy. That's as close as we're going to get to political it's humor. Two homogenous <clears throat> blobs and Ralph Nader. Well, okay. <laughs> That's as close as we're going to get to political humor. But anyway. And Ron Paul. Now we're done. <laughs> now we're really done. Okay, you're right. You may have differing opinions from different parts of the populace, especially if there's regional differences in power and rulership. But there will probably be a collective, yeah, you know, they're all right. Or, no, no, these guys are awful that you can paint with a very broad brush with. That does also bring up the question of how much secular power they have. We're talking about them as a religious order. How much secular political authority, real or... or Populous. Well, I'm going to say a realpolitik style where, you know, yeah, we have real political power despite not having any legal authority, or we have legal authority, but we don't actually exercise it for whatever reason. Or we don't have either. Or we only do in really dire circumstances. Yeah. Or- uh, for example, abbeys and monasteries scattered about that are cloistered off and they don't interact with anybody. Okay, cool. Or maybe they have local authority. People go to them for guidance and prayers. People trade with them. You know, monastery has to support itself somehow. They produce certain goods as a way of funding the monastery and keeping it up and running. Well, now you're interacting with everybody. Do they have any authority? Or is it something like the Knights of Malta where they are secular power there? Like Vatican City, the religious hierarchy in Vatican City is the same as the political hierarchy. There's also another way this could go is important people or famous people who are in somehow tied into the order. Yeah, that's true. Uh, My mind is going to Kabbalah and Scientology and actors and actresses in our modern day era. Yeah. Madonna comes out as being Kabbalah and 
all of a sudden it's a huge insert, uh, resurgency and people are interested in it. And people want to be it because they idolize her. Mm-hmm. Maybe you have a famous bard who is a member of the Knights Hospitaller or something in your group. More realistic example, Cardinal Richelieu, a cardinal who has tremendous political authority in the French court, who also has religious authority, and the two are tied together. He's the highest-ranking religious figure in the court. He's very important because of that, but he takes that and turns it into secular power. You're right, it's a very personal thing, and it's not necessarily done through popular fame so much as elite authority. It can go either way, really. Yeah. Now, how established is that religious order with things like Kabbalah and Scientology? They're not historically very established. They don't have a long history. Well, Kabbalah does. Scientology does. Well, Kabbalah does, but it's not a particularly... It's, it was never mainstream. It was never mainstream. They're not especially established in the mainstream. Whereas the Benedictine monks or the Franciscan friars... Or the Jesuits or the Knights of Malta or... Right. They've existed for a very long time and have been established in Europe for a very long time indeed. And as such, have a long history there, even if they're not as omnipresent as they were then. They still have a long history to draw from, and people go, oh, yeah, he's a Franciscan. All right. And I think that either side of that can be interesting. Hey, we are brand new. We were just founded 30 years ago. Or we were just founded 30 days ago. Right. We were just founded yesterday right. because of this one big thing. Right. Some big event happened. We've been founded as a response to that. We're still getting our feet under us. That's a cool story. Versus, hey, there's a thousand years of history and tradition I've got to live up to and changing times that we have to adapt to. That's also a cool story. They're different stories, but cool. Or I've got a thousand years of history and tradition, some of it good, some of it very bad, and what do we do with that? Yeah. Yeah. I want to beat on the drum of Brandon Sanderson and go back to religions, but the Church of... It was a religious order that was used as a political tool. And we're getting into spoilers, unfortunately. (laughs) But yes, yeah, that's a good example. I wish we could talk more without spoiling it. Mistborn is becoming, like, must-read for our (laughs) listening audience at this point. Apparently so. I should probably reread it at some point. Yeah, me too. Anyway, especially famous or infamous events or periods in the Order's past are a great touchstone for your story and for a character to be built off of, because it's a single point in time that you can point to and say it had these repercussions and the story is a direct result of that moment. To borrow a classic JRPG trope, the evil so-and-so was sealed away for a thousand years and you've entered the order 999.875 years after that point. Hey, guess what you're going to be doing? Yeah, the can is going to open. Right, that's a key point. The history of it's going to come up, but... A, it's time for you to do something about it as opposed to all the historical figures before them. Something else we've touched on occasionally is what else do they do aside from the specific religious duties they were founded for? How does a order support itself? What other effects do they have on the community around them? Mendicant orders, for example, go around begging. They live off of alms that are given to them. But many monastic orders traditionally support themselves by 
producing something, maybe various different crops and livestock to support themselves, maybe one particular form of livestock that or like the sheep trade good that they trade yeah sheep a good example or some other artisanal good that they produce and trade or sell to support the monastery there's a a particularly famous beer that went on sale a couple of years ago because it's this it's considered the best beer in the world and it's only made in this one particular monastery I think a Belgian monastery, if I remember correctly. I, I'll have to look it up later. I can't re- remember off the top of my head. But it, they were selling a limited number of six-packs to raise money for renovations. And it was going for, I want to say, a couple hundred dollars a six-pack because it was so sought after. Wow. They sold it for a specific amount, just enough to raise money for the renovations they wanted because they weren't trying to make a profit off of it. They were just trying to fix the monastery or make some renovations. Everyone else said... Hey, I have this incredibly rare, incredibly good beer. Sweet. I can make a profit off of this. And the market price is of it this just went Dark up. Lord? Monastic beer scalpers. Kind of. Which yes. is a group um, of words I will never use together in a sentence ever again. You think that. Really, <laughs> yeah. it'll come up again at some point. But it's something that they produce that people want, and that's how they support the monastery. That's a great way to flavor things, no pun intended. Yeah, this monastery, they're really good weavers. They make really interesting fabric, and it's well-known. just really comfortable or really finely made. Right. Could be just unbleached woven stuff that's ready for dyeing by somebody else, but it feels really good, or it's especially warm or durable. Yeah. Or... And, you know, maybe people around there wear it as a badge of pride. Like, yeah, you know, I'm wearing the fabric that our local monastery made, and the fact that I'm wearing it, means that I've traded for it and I've helped support the monastery. It's sort of like people who give to public radio drives and things like that. They've got the bumper sticker on on their car saying, yeah, you know what? I donated. It's even comparable to those blood drive stickers that they slap on you when you finish giving blood. Right. Yeah, it's a source of pride. And in many cases, it's a sort of community and civic pride as opposed to a personal sort of pride. These guys are really good monks. I'm happy to wear their stuff. Yeah. Something like that. And the last thing... That I think Brandon came up with this one. Nope, that one was me. Oh, excellent. Do they have rivals? Yeah. Or partners. Or do they have partnerships? Essentially, what's their relationship with other organizations, whether sibling organizations within the same religion or opposed or different religions and orders within there? It's kind of a fantasy trope that you have two orders fighting each other, one in service of one deity, one in service of another, right? Well, we were founded to oppose this other order, the good knights and evil knights, that sort of thing. But within a particular religion, you may have a partnership between two orders or a rivalry that's grown out of essentially a sort of political fight for resources within the church and support within the church for their particular organization. Things like that. You never know. And you may also see things where there's some kind of a large problem in the area and a bunch of different religious organizations from different religions get together to solve it together. Sure. You you see that in the real world. Christian and Jewish organizations tend to work together a lot for common cause. Oh, yeah. In fact, my church, my congregation, actually, we participate in GAIN, which is the Greenville Area Interfaith Hospitality Network. Essentially... Every couple of months, the church transforms its classrooms and offices into 
uh, housing for a week for homeless families that essentially move from church to church and not just Christian churches, but other faith organizations within Greenville. And that way these homeless families get to stay together because one of the problems with homeless shelters is they tend to separate people out by gender. And so families can't stay together. Yeah, it's a problem. And especially for families that have been separate for a while, it's really hard to maintain those family ties. So essentially we say, yeah, this is your room for a week. You get to live here. We're not going to bother you. We'll be around if you need us. There are people always on site just to help people out as needed. And honestly, I'm sure there's kind of the unspoken. Yeah, we're going to make sure you're not doing anything. We don't want you doing while you're here, but we're not going to stand over you and watch. You have privacy within the rooms, and if you need help with anything, just let us know, and we'll come and help you out, try and provide activities and that sort of thing. It's really cool, Grant. It's a really cool thing, and I'm really glad that Greenville does it because it's a very hands-on sort of service to the community. But the key thing is the partnership there. It's not just our church doing it. It's not just the Presbyterian church doing it. It's a connection between various congregations of various denominations and faiths. And that's exactly the kind of thing we're talking about. What can they do working together? It's a good thing. Yeah, you're helping people because they need help, not because it's a way to get your foot in the door to get them into your particular faith, because they're moving around to all these different organizations that don't have the same set of beliefs, Right. other than that people who need help should receive it. Yeah, exactly. And would we like it if... They were Christian. Presbyterians? Sure. I'm sure you would. Personally, I'll take Christian. Presbyterian? Yeah, sure. Fine. But Christian? Yes, I would like that. But it's kind of the living into ministry idea where we're doing something because it needs to be done. And through that example, through serving others, we're preaching the gospel in that way. That goes back to the St. Francis of Assisi quote that we like, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Yes, exactly. I think that kind of partnership is something that can naturally crop up if you have religions that differ theologically but don't have wildly different outlooks on life. I think you're less likely to find this in a fantasy setting where it's like, oh, yeah, we worship the god of nature and you worship the god of rocks and buildings and concrete and rebar. We're not getting it along. I worship the god of peace. I worship the god of stabbing. Not war, (laughs) stabbing. Specifically stabbing. (laughs) You're servants of the good god, servants of the evil god. High fantasy is going to have trouble with that, but maybe not. Closely related religions and orders could very well have this happen. And I suspect if you two are both out in the middle of nowhere and you're the only neighbors each other has... You'll either get this strong rivalry or you'll just end up communicating and dealing with each other regardless because, hey, you got to have somebody to borrow that cup of sugar from. Absolutely. I can't think of a better place to end this one, actually. No, neither can I. This is a pretty good spot. Yeah, Brandon, you got anything else? Not really. Okay, cool. Well, then I want to thank everybody for listening to us ramble on for a bit about, well, world building, really. And sheep. Yeah. If you have any thoughts on the topic. Please go ahead and post about it in our Saving the Game Google Plus community and on our Facebook page and really anywhere else. Go ahead and tweet them to us. We try and be pretty active on Twitter, at Saving the Game. So uh, you can always get in touch with us there. But from all of us here, thanks for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening, everybody. I'm Grant. Peter. And I'm happy to be here. Still? Really? Yeah! All right, All right, sweet. Brandon. <laughs> <laughs> Signing off. All right, but no. Yeah, thanks for listening, folks. You have a good one. Yeah, see ya. 
This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons non-commercial, non-derivative license so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless and happy gaming.